Please take your Bibles and turn with me in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 30. We are looking at the next section in Proverbs chapter 30. We will look at verses 10 through 16 today. And, and the, the author of these, pro, these sayings of Augur has done an interesting thing with numbers. Uh, he has compiled for us a series of four Proverbs some of which are interrupted by a, another proverb that seems to stand on its own but ties itself in. Some of these series of four proverbs, like the verses we'll look at today, 10 through um, 14, are unnumbered. Other proverbs, like the ones we'll look at in verses 15 and 16, are numbered in a way that shows intensification or, or points us to the fact that they are numbered four. You'll say there are three things. No, there are four. Um, it's not that he changed his mind mid-sentence. He's just trying to highlight the progression of the number four for us in these particular Proverbs. And so we'll see groupings of four as we go throughout this, two of which we'll look at today. So follow along, take up your Bibles and follow along with me as we read Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 10. Do not slander a servant to his master, or he will curse you and you will pay for it. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful, those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren woman, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. Let us pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the God who probes our hearts and shines your holy light on our sinfulness. You are the God who, through his Son, has given us grace as revealed in your scripture. And the Holy Spirit illumines our sinfulness and his grace and brings us comfort in the grace that is ours. So as you illuminate this passage today, show us where we fall short and lead us to repentance and restoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've come to the realization over the last few months that I do not believe that we any longer live in a capitalist society. Now, for the record, I don't think we necessarily live in a socialist society either, although we may be trending that way. And also, for the record, socialism isn't the only economic system that finds itself opposite or opposed to a capitalist system. I don't think we live in a capitalist society anymore, because when we think of capitalism as described by Adam Smith or Ludwig von Mises or Frederick Hayek, in the system described by these men, there is a sense of community care wrapped up in the economic system. Business endeavors and economic endeavors should benefit the whole community, not just me. But somewhere in the late 20th century, which just feels really odd saying late 20th century, but somewhere within the late 20th century, I became the focus of economic growth rather than we. We changed from a we to a me 
And this system ushered in a system called consumerism. Instead of businesses spending and bringing benefits to society, business and spending now exists to fill my need to consume. And if it benefits the society, great. If not, well, at least I got mine. Consumerism is built on the reality that the heart cry of humanity is gimme, 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 and then gimme some more. And the sad reality is that this is nothing new. This gimme, gimme mindset is the mindset of humanity at large. And it is also a descriptor of sinful patterns in our life. And our author today in this passage points to the reality that sin consumes And in pointing to that reality, he points to our need to guard against the consuming nature of sin. Our author today begins with a warning not to meddle. Verse 10 says, do not slander a servant to his master or he will curse you and you will pay for it. The warning here, which seems a little bit out of place until we really kind of consider how it fits in with this idea that sin consumes and we need to be on guard against the consumptive nature of sin. This, this proverb reminds us that when we see somebody within his household having stress, we need to weigh the cost of interjecting ourselves into that distress without being invited. Have you ever watched a pair of siblings, a brother and a sister, or two sisters or two brothers, just absolutely going at it, arguing and seeking, looking like they're just tearing each other down, ripping each other to shreds? I see some brothers and sisters in here smiling. And if you ever saw it as an outsider, well, you know what? I, I, know, I know how to fix this problem for this brother and this sister that are just, man, going at it. And so I'm going to walk into this difficulty and I'm going to help them fix it. I see some of you shaking your heads. What happens? Brother and sister, instead of being enemies, are now allies and you're the one that is consumed by the argument. And so Solomon or or Augur here, the author, is warning us that you do not interject yourself into a family squabble, into a household squabble, without the danger of being consumed by that difficulty. He reminds us that servants here are actually members of the household. They are not just employees. They are not just slaves. They are under the care of the master. And so you don't go to a master and you don't say, hey, Let me tell you something bad about your servant or your child or your spouse because you will be consumed by that household as they gang up against you to defend themselves. That is the stark and quick reminder of what we learn in today's passage is that the reality when we interject ourselves into sinful patterns where we do not belong, sin will consume us. So how does sin consume? Well, the author begins by showing us four graceless people that are consumed by sin. The first is found in verse 11. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. The fifth commandment calls us to honor our parents, and this honoring involves respect and involves using our words to commend or to lift up our parents, and it, it involves obedience to just and godly discipline. 
And the reality is that it is within the family that God has intended for his wisdom and his law to be taught. God has established the family as the foundational social relationship in a culture or a society. And the transmission of wisdom and law from parent to child is how God has ordained to preserve the traditions and practices that bring peace and prosperity to a culture. God has built the foundation of most societies and most cultures upon the foundation of the family. Is it any wonder that he takes family responsibility so seriously and that the enemy, the principalities and the powers of the air, those things at work that we see when God pulls back the curtain for us in Revelation, in Isaiah, in Daniel, in Ezekiel, is it any wonder that they are so bent and determined to destroy the family. When we take what our parents have taught us as they have sought to honor God, to teach us those practices that bring us peace, bring us prosperity, bring the community and the culture peace and the culture prosperity, when we turn our backs on them, we show a, a link to folly and to sin rather than to wisdom. The second type of graceless person pointed to in this passage is the hypocrite. Verse 11, there are those who are, excuse me, verse 12, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. Now, this isn't the hypocrite as those antagonistic against the church describe it. This is the hypocrite who thinks he has everything together who thinks of himself as righteous according to his own definition and yet are still foolish and wicked. In Matthew 23, 25 through 28, Jesus says this about the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus reminds us, the author here reminds us that those who define righteousness according to their own standard and then continue in sin and wickedness are fools and are graceless. The third type of graceless person is the arrogant fool, the one who has the proud looks. We used to say, you know, that person has his nose stuck up in the air. He is a snob. This person thinks he's better than everyone and even his unspoken communication communicates to everyone that they are arrogant, that they are proud. And this is a sign of foolishness. And the fourth graceless person highlighted here is the cool, the cruel, not cool, cruel oppressor. The cruel oppressor is those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives. They devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. They are so consumed with a desire for the things of this earth that they will take even from the poor and from the oppressed. And so before we move on to see the, the, the consumption that this sinful patterns in your life gives, I think we need to see that this is a pattern. 
There is a progression from graceless person number one to graceless person number four. We begin with the rebelling against our parents, whether you are the rebel who never grew out of the terrible twos or the dutiful daughter who turns your back on the wisdom and law taught to you by your parents. The first chance you get The rejection of the wisdom that our parents have taught us is typically the beginning of the walk toward folly and sinfulness. Somewhere around the same time we move from a capitalist to a consumerist economy, we also move from a definition of critical thinking being we get all the information from both sides, we sift through it for ourselves, and we come to an informed conclusion We move from that to a definition of critical thinking being the rejection or opt of doing the, excuse me, the rejection of everything that culture teaches. In America, this meant the rejection of the moral foundations of the Judeo-Christian ethic. But when you reject the foundations of morality in a culture, you have to redefine what is moral, what is right, what is wrong. And then you can move to the second step in the process where you declare yourself to be righteous because you have defined what is right and wrong, and yet you are still full of sin and filthiness. This sense of righteousness or really self-righteousness will lead to pride then and looking down upon others because I am righteous according to my own standard, which means I'm better than you who are righteous according to a different standard. And then we justify further sin and the consumption of those who do not have, taking from them so that we can get more and more for ourselves. And what does the author says about what does the author say about these sinful practices? He pulls no punches. He says these sinful practices are like the leech who give and who they and who give or who cry give and give. I've never had this particular experience, but I've read of other people that have that have gone swimming in a river and they come out and they have these slug like things stuck all over their body. What are they doing? They're leeches that are sucking blood. And when will they stop? Never. They will continue to suck blood and suck blood from you until it's either all gone or they have died. Sin and folly are that way. And the author here gives a picture of four things that are never satisfied, much like sin and folly. And just so you know, these are not moral or ethical determinations of these particular things. These are just examples that, of things that no matter how much you give to them, they will never be filled. The first is the grave. Until Jesus returns and shows and exercises once and for all his eternal defeat of death and Hades, there will never be a time when the grave says, you know what, enough people have died, nobody has to die anymore. The grave will continue to be filled until Christ returns. It will continue to consume until Christ returns. Think of the money and the effort that is spent by people who struggle to conceive and the reality that the effort and money many times is an expense that it comes to nothing. It continues to consume. 
When has your garden, when has your yard ever said you never have to water me again? I will stay green and producing flowers and fruit for the rest of eternity. And finally, how much wood can you put on a fire to ensure that you will never have to feed that fire ever again? These are things that no matter how much you give them, they will continue to consume whatever it is that you feed to them. And the warning here is that sin will always consume more and more. It is never enough. Do you struggle with greed? You will always sell your soul for one dollar more. You struggle with pornography. You will find yourself watching stuff in the future that you consider abominable today. Do you seek fulfillment in relationships? You will feed love and affection into those relationships and you will still battle rejection and loneliness. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you feed sin, it is never enough. It will always demand more and more of your soul, of your conscience, of your relationships, of your money. Whatever you are willing to feed into your sin, it will take all of it. Children, beware the temptation to turn your backs on the teaching of your parents. The sin that you walk into in doing that will consume you. Parents, beware of putting all your hope for meaning and satisfaction in your children or in your grandchildren. They will consume more than just your pantry. So what do we do? We've seen that sins consumes, that folly consumes How do we respond in light of the reality that sin and folly consume? Well, if you find yourself stuck in that cycle, that consumptive cycle of sin, I I encourage you to go back to verses 1 through 9. Look at how when when the author was brought to a sense of weariness because of his sin, that he, he, he admitted who he was before God. He admitted who God was, and he confessed and repented and turned back to a pursuit of wisdom, to a pursuit of holiness. Listening to God, hearing what God has to say and asking God to keep him from falsehood, from sin and from folly. But what do we do about this consumptive cycle of sin within our own world? We find the answer to that in our scripture reading from today, beginning in verse 12, after the psalmist in Psalm 10 after he has laid out all the horrors of the oppressive people who are being consumed by sin and seeking to consume the poor and the downtrodden, instead of getting depressed, instead of getting beaten down, instead of saying, oh, woe is me, in verse 12, he says, arise, O Lord, lift up your hand and do not forget the helpless. Oftentimes, when we seek to right the wrongs of this world, we take action, which is not necessarily bad, but we take action and then we get, you know, five or ten steps into whatever particular action we're taking and we say, oh yeah, by the way, God, if you want to come along and join me, that'd be great. Maybe you could lend a hand. The psalmist here says, no, you start with God. You start with the reminder that God sees and God cares. 
Does the psalmist have to say, do not forget the helpless to God because he's gotten busy and he's forgotten what's going on in this earth? No, he's calling God to act. He's calling God to work on behalf of the helpless. He's taking his his passion. He's taking his anger for this evil that he sees in the world. And he's going, why does this happen? Why won't you stop it? Oh, God. But. I know that you see. I know that you consider it. I know that you have taken it in your hand. The victim commits himself to you and you are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. There's a a section of psalms called the imprecatory psalms, and, and some psalms have imprecatory parts to them. This is one of those. I have to be careful with what I'm going to say, but we do not, you and I do not pray the imprecatory psalms enough. God, there is evil in this world, destroy it. God, there is harm and oppression in this world, destroy it. God's sin and sinful people are consuming other people, destroy them. Punish that sin, punish that wickedness, come down and break the arms, break the strength of those who oppress. According to your will according to your glory. And if you see so fit to allow your judgment, your breaking of the arm to fall instead of on that person to fall upon the cross, help me to glorify you in that as well. We don't pray for God to intervene in the life of the oppressor enough. We don't pray for God to break the cycle of oppression enough. We think of prayer as something that we add on to something that we do just to make sure maybe God tags along. But God says, no, start with prayer and see what I can do through the work that you choose to do, the work that I lead you to. The consumption of sin will leave us empty. And yet it is the cross that fills us with what we hope sin will. The pursuit of trying to break the arm of sin in the world on our own will leave us broken. But it is the power of God and the cross that will lead us into a place where God hears and he answers through us. And then the psalmist praises God. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from this land You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. All the wicked systems of this world, all the consumption of sin in this world will fade away. It is temporary. Whatever grip sin has on you today, whatever sin you were wrestling with that you think it has consumed me for years and it just won't go away. I'm stuck with this forever. No, you're not. 
Sin's reign is temporary and it will perish from this land. So praise God in the midst of your wrestling that he hears and defends the afflicted. Pray to the God who judges the wicked. Pray to the one who can break the cycle of destructive consumption that sin brings on a culture or a country bent on rebellion and sin. And then work. When we forget prayer, we take the burden on ourselves and that will consume you. Without prayer, all of your work for justice in this world will never be enough. Without prayer, your work is built on the with prayer. Excuse me. Your work is built on the foundation of God's eternal work to alleviate suffering and injustice in this world. Don't meddle. in a brother and sister fighting and arguing. Beware that sin consumes. And begin your work against the against the consumptive power of sin through prayer. The consumption of sin is exhausting. Whether it is you consuming or sin consuming you or the combination of the two. The consumption of sin is exhausting. The more we try to pull into ourselves, the more it eats away at us, the the more exhausting it is just trying to keep up the facade. It is into that reality that God spoke the words, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus has broken the consumptive cycle of sin. And by resting in him, we have the strength to break it in our own lives and to see his glory as he breaks it in the world around us, whether now or in eternity. Let's pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for this warning that if we are not careful, sin will eat us alive. We thank you as well for the cross that gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to break that consumptive cycle and to find rest and fulfillment in you. Lord, as we look at the world around us, help us to pray for your power in the injustices, in the consumption of sin that we see in our own lives. Help us to turn to you in repentance and to be refreshed and refilled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go today, take this blessing upon you. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and in every good word. We pray along with the saints. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.